0: Welcome to the Waukesha Bible Church Podcast. We believe the Bible tells a single story, and at the center of that story is Jesus. If you like what you hear today, additional sermons, teaching sessions, and written material can be found on our website at waukeshawebible.org. We hope you enjoy today's episode. We're reading from Psalm 16. Keep me safe, O God, for in you I take refuge. I said to the Lord, You are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. As for the saints who are in the land, they are the glorious ones in whom is all my delight. The sores of those will increase who run after other gods. I will not pour out their libations of blood or take up their names on my lips. Lord, you have assigned me my portion and my cup. You have made my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure, because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence with eternal pleasures at your right hand.
1: Amen. Please be seated. Get the backup quarterback today, Pastor Pat's at Day, And so uh, we're in between series, and we're into a new year. We're about to step into the study in James. We just did a study in Exodus, and then we broke for Advent. And so this morning we find ourselves in Psalms. But as we begin a new year, Nothing's really changed for us. We're still staying on point. We believe that the Bible tells a single story, and the centerpiece of that story is Jesus. Where have you heard that before? Hopefully here, week in and week out. Nothing's changing. Anywhere you nick this story, it bleeds Jesus. We're not trying to oversimplify this at all, nor are we trying to force Jesus into a text where he's not present. However, we do believe that Jesus is the substance of every shadow. He is the fulfillment of every Old Testament promise, picture, and prophecy. And so that shapes the way we approach the text. We look to study the passage of Scripture, no matter what text it is, within its context. Historical, literary, and biblical. Our desire as we approach the text isn't to figure out, what does it mean to me? What does it mean to you? How do you feel about this? We want to hear the author's intent of the Scriptures. We want to consider how the original audience would have heard and understand and applied this. We also want to consider the genre of literature in which the text is written. Whether it's a narrative or an epistle or a parable or it's poetry or it's apocalyptic, it matters. It shapes the way that we understand The text. And so this morning we find ourselves in the book of Psalms. Psalms are Hebrew poetry. No matter how you feel about poetry, because you're probably spread out across the board, most people are either like it or hate it. You know, poetry. Get to the point, right? So however you feel about poetry, it doesn't matter because it seems like we all seem to resonate with the Psalms it's like the Psalms have its own gravitational pull or it's like this, this tractor beam that pulls us in and just we're drawn to the Psalms for a number of reasons. Whether we understand the imagery that's taking place or not, whether we understand the parallelism or if we feel like it's really difficult and it's really hard to understand what they're saying or I don't get that, but I like this verse. No matter if it, it feels confusing or cryptic, We all seem to find ourselves gravitating toward the Psalms. Why is that? I think there's a number of reasons, and without going into all the nuances of the Psalms, I think a key reason why we seem to resonate with the Psalms is how real and raw the psalmists seem to be. We appreciate genuine we don't like fake. We can tell when someone's being phony or they're, they're putting on the mask or they're just going through the motions, and we don't like that. And so we come to the Psalms and we're like, ah, this is good. The psalmist is real and raw in their expectations. And as they navigate life on the horizontal, they recognize that it's messy. Life's not always neat and clean. It's not all unicorns and rainbows. The sun isn't always shining. The birds are not singing your name. The squirrels are not pressing your pants. And the psalmist is willing to acknowledge that, right? The psalmist is willing to recognize reality and call it what it is. And it's one of the reasons we go through the psalms for call to worship. They're concise, most of them. Some of them aren't, but they're concise. And the, the psalmist just works through their feelings almost in an unfiltered way. If they're frustrated with God, they let Him know. Life's messy. Life's hard. And they wrestle through life and they puke it all out on God. And guess what? God can handle it. I'm thankful for the Psalms. It's not polished and clean, and here's your theology all wrapped up in a nice tight little bow, is real people in time and space who are working through the issues and hardships of life, and they're just raw. It's unfiltered, and yet these unfiltered emotions and the struggles of life end up being filtered through the reality of who God is, and ultimately the psalmist has a confidence in God no matter what the circumstances are that they're facing, and so We resonate with that because we can identify with that. Because your life is like my life is like the psalmist's life. That's not always easy. It's not always puppies and ice cream. It's tough. Relationships, finances, social circumstances. I mean, you fill in the blanks. Chronic illness. There's just tons of different things that just drain and sap the joy out of life. And the psalmist is, you know, they acknowledge that. And they say, you know what? we can resonate with that. And so we go to the Psalms. And this morning we find ourselves at Psalm 16. This psalm is a prayer King David makes as his life is threatened. David's prayer finds its answer, its solution in the presence of his God, Yahweh. A quick overview of the outline. In verses 1 and 2, we find this kingly prayer for protection. In 3 through 8, it's a priestly prayer of confession and then as he concludes this prayer it's more prophetic it's a prophetic prayer of satisfaction and so this kingly prayer for protection verses one and two david prays preserve me O god for in you i take refuge i say to the lord i say to yahweh you are my lord i have no good apart from you god protect me guard me think about it the author david Whether he was a shepherd in the fields, whether he was um, a singer in King Saul's court, or a soldier in King Saul's army, or the sovereign king of Israel, David knew what his life was like to be threatened. David knew what peril and danger was like. His whole life seems to revolve around this. It seems like the valley of the shadow of death was always a close reality for David. And we don't really know the historical context of this psalm, but it seems like it's fitting in just about every phase of David's life. And so in verse 1 and 2, King David prays for Yahweh to preserve his life from death. He prays with confidence that God alone was his only refuge and source of security. He prays, preserve me, protect me. Guard me, keep me safe, rescue my life. And then he calls on God as his refuge. This word refuge is used throughout the Psalms often. This word refuge is one we can identify with. It's a place of safety, a place of rest, a place of comfort. Implying a place to be trusted, to keep one safe. It's the place where we go to catch our breath. We exhale. We don't have to fear. We don't have to put on a, a show. We can just be. No one's judging us. No one's asking of us. No one's calling us to perform. No one. It, it's just this place where we can breathe easy. Anxiety can go away. Maybe we don't have a place like that in our lives. Maybe our lives are just riddled with constant going and doing and we don't have this place of refuge. And David acknowledged that even the midst of death that he faced, his refuge was in God alone. And so he prays for God to protect his life and to keep him safe and to be his refuge, his safe place. And he acknowledges that his only good, his only satisfaction was found in God alone. Nowhere else. I only have good connected with you. Apart from you, God, I've got nothing. And so even though David is in the face of danger, peril, death, the psalm doesn't read like we would expect. There's no complaining. There's no um, working through this raw emotion as much as it is a calm confidence in this God who David is calling on. There seems to be this settled calm, this inward joy, this confidence As David prays. And now he moves into from this this kingly prayer for protection into more of a priestly prayer of confession. Look at verses 3 through 8. Verse 3, As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. David is praying with a priestly perspective as he identifies with God's people. David is connecting himself not as as king as much as he is now as priest. And this psalm echoes Exodus in so many ways. But in these first four verses, they echo the Ten Commandments where it could be summarized as David's love for God and his love for God's people. But more specifically, in verse 3, as David delights in God's people, it seems to be because he sees them as God intended them to be. So as this echoes Exodus... Consider Exodus 19, verses 5 and 6, as God is speaking to Moses to relate to the children of Israel, and he says, Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. This is how David is viewing God's people. And that's what we see in verse 3. The saints in the land, the excellent ones, the ones who are separated, those are the ones who David delights in. And he sees them as God's people and he leads them in worship of God. The priestly imagery continues as David warns of the emptiness of pursuing other gods. So if you want to pursue something other than Yahweh, go ahead. But here's what you can expect. Sorrow upon sorrow, emptiness, disillusion. It's not going to go well. As humans, we're hardwired to be worshipers. We're going to find something or someone to worship, to pursue, to be consumed with. And David says, it's either Yahweh or it's some other god, a pagan god, or a god of our own making. And David is saying, it's not worth it. And so as he leads this nation, he refuses to worship like the pagans did. And he makes some connections to what we see in Leviticus and in Numbers and in Exodus. He's even quoting, paraphrasing Exodus twenty-three, thirteen, when he says, I'm not even going to take their names upon my lips, the names of other gods. And so we see that taking place in the psalm. And so you can see that David knew the Torah. David knew the law. David was entrenched in the scriptures. And this psalm resonates with that but David further identifies with this priestly order. If you look at verses 5 and 6, as he he considers what he truly values in this life and the life to come. He says, The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. David's still praying this priestly confession. And it's interesting. Remember, What tribe did David come from? Judah, right? Came from the tribe of Judah. This was the the tribe in which the long-anticipated Messiah would come from. But David is resonating with, connecting to the tribe of Levi, the priestly tribe. And as the nation of Israel moves into the promised land, think about what happens. All these other tribes are getting land parceled out to them. But what happens to the tribe of Levi? In Numbers 18, verses 20 through 24, actually all of chapters num- of, of Numbers 18, but we'll just focus on a couple verses here. In verse 20, here's what the Levites get. And the Lord said to Aaron, you shall have no inheritance in the land, neither shall you have any portion among them. Huh. Everyone else is getting land. God continues, I am your portion and your inheritance among the people of Israel. And then in verses 21 through 24, he reiterates that. No inheritance, no land. The tithes are coming into you and you are going to bear the weight of the nation's sins. You're going to care for these people. You don't have time to be consumed with land and property and farming and all this stuff. Your focus is going to be on me. He says, I am your portion and your inheritance. So in verses 3 through 8 here, David is confessing, even though he's king of this nation, he's confessing, this is what I'm living for. This is who my focus is on. David is king. With being king comes power, prestige, wealth, land, you name it. He had it all. And yet his heart is captivated with Yahweh. King David's priestly confession was that Yahweh was all he wanted, all he needed. He says in verse 5, you are my chosen portion. Verse 6, in you I have a beautiful inheritance. He's identifying with this, the Levitical priesthood. And so that's what we're seeing in this text. But this priestly king turns prophet as this prayer concludes in verses 9 through 11 It becomes a prophetic prayer of satisfaction. I have gravitated towards verse 11 regularly in my meditation, in prayer. It's one of those things that in my life I pray personally and I pray for us corporately because so many things distract me from what I already have and what I already possess and who I am in Christ. And so I'm constantly resonating with verse 11. But as David ends this prayer... Joy replaces fear. Verse 9 says, Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. Remember verses 1 and 2? Protect me. Save me. Preserve me. Guard my life. But there's a strong confidence in Yahweh. And so as he is concluding this prayer, he says, My heart is glad. All of me rejoices. Joy replaces fear in the midst of danger and certain death, because his focus, his confidence, his security was found in the person of God alone. Verse 10 becomes a messianic prophecy that we are going to see Jesus fulfills. We're going to circle back to that, but in the immediate context, David is expressing his confidence and security that Yahweh will not allow death to win. Listen to verse 10. You will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Sounds a lot like Psalm 23, doesn't it? Though I'm in the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. It's your presence is the reason why I'm not afraid and I'm confident even though I'm staring down death. The same thing's taking place here. And he says, you'll not abandon my soul to Sheol Or let your Holy One see corruption. It seems that David's confidence, you can read this a couple different ways, but his confidence was either that Yahweh would answer the prayer he started in verse 1, that he is going to protect him, preserve his life, keep him from death, or that even through death, he's going to somehow allow him to be with him, his presence. And he's going to enjoy that presence and rescue him, and he will ultimately have this eternal joy and satisfaction. And whether David knew it or not, he's praying, not just for himself, but he's praying prophetically. And as we'll see, that this really echoes and finds its fulfillment in Jesus. But this prayer concludes with verse 11, and he says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. He doesn't say in the absence of danger. He doesn't say in the absence of trials. He doesn't say when life's going easy that I find the satisfaction and joy in the path of life. It's not in the absence of trial or suffering or hardship or difficulty in the horizontal, but it's in the presence of Jesus that there's fullness of joy. There's pres- in the presence of his God, There's fullness of joy. And that's what this prayer concludes with. He summarizes the reality of Yahweh's presence in his life. God reveals to him the path of life. He says, you make known to me this path. You reveal to me this path of life. And that path is the presence of God. The psalmist realizes that this satisfaction of joy, this fullness of joy, is found in the presence of God. This fullness of joy, it's the state of contentment and satisfaction implying abundance. The psalmist rests finally in the last stanza. He rests in pleasures for eternity. Where is that other than in the presence of God? He says, at your right hand. This is symbolic of strength, of power, of prestige. Earlier in verse 8, David says, I've set the Lord always before me. He's at my right hand. This is my focus, but now his prayer shifts, and he says, I'm at his right hand. Experience this pleasure and joy forevermore. This idea of pleasures is This good, acceptable, favorable thing. In verse 6, it was a place of delight. Now in verse 11, it's endless delight. In this idea of forevermore, the unending, everlasting, always, unlimited in the duration of time, this language in verse 11 is Edenic language. It's the picture of when God created Adam and Eve, so that they would know and experience the joy that he has within himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What would God do with them in the cool of the day? He would meet with them for their joy. This is the language that's being employed here. This prayer for the presence of Yahweh to be all-satisfying and all-encompassing hyperlinks us back to Exodus once again. We just finished a study in Exodus, so if you've been journeying with us for any you know length of time, these... Triggers have probably been going off in your head, but what's the whole idea of Exodus is God rescuing his people so that they could know and enjoy him. And he brings them out of the land and he brings them into the wilderness and he sets up all this covenant stuff with them so that he can have a relationship with them. And what happens? Exodus 32 happens. We know the golden calf. And God's just he's done with this stiff-necked and rebellious people. And he says, I'm going to annihilate you guys, and I'm going to start over with you, Moses. And Moses says, okay, we can't do that for a number of reasons. And so Moses intercedes, and God listens. And Exodus 33 is all about God's presence being with his people because God finally says, okay, Moses, I'm not going to destroy them. They can go into the promised land, but guess what? I'm not going with them. That was hard for Moses to process because then in Exodus 33, he, he says, well, then what's the point of us going into the land? If you're not coming with us, then we've got nothing. Our identity is tied to you. Our identity is wrapped up in you. And if you're not here, then we're just like any other pagan nation. You're the only thing that sets us apart as a special people. You're the only thing that we have. And so as Moses is pleading with God in Exodus 33, God says, all right, I'll go up with you. And then we see the rest of Exodus unfolding. But it's all revolving around God's presence. Not shocking, it's always been about God's presence. From God's presence in the Garden of Eden to his presence with the tabernacle in the wilderness to the temple in Jerusalem to Emmanuel, God with us. We've just celebrated Advent to us gathering week in and week out to be reminded of the presence of God as the church He said to his disciples, I'm not going to leave you orphans. I'm going to come to you. We're going to make our home with you. John 14, he gave us a spirit. And then as we look to the future, as life, joy, and pleasure are all wrapped up in the presence of Jesus. So why is this prophetic? We looked at verse 10, and I said we'd circle back to this. But why... Does this particular psalm and this verse point to Jesus? How is this a prophecy of Jesus? And did David even understand what he was writing when he wrote it? I have no idea, but we regularly reference Luke 24. And as we look at Luke 24, you're familiar with it. Jesus has been crucified. And now we've got a couple of disciples on the road to Emmaus, and this unexpected traveler joins them and they didn't understand they didn't couldn't tell who he was they were it was kept from them and he starts explaining to them from their scriptures which we call the old testament the old covenant he explains to them how all these things must be fulfilled and they're just blown away and their hearts are resonating with this and and then their eyes were opened to who Jesus was and he vanishes And they run back to Jerusalem to tell the disciples, but guess who shows up? Jesus in their midst. And they think they're seeing a ghost. And he's like, no, it's me. And what he does in Luke 24 is he shows them how the scriptures connected to him from the law of Moses to the prophets to the Psalms. And he opened their understanding to see how all these dots connected to him being the fulfillment of every promise, every picture, every prophecy, how he was the fulfillment. And so, no doubt, this resonated regarding the resurrection. And the Apostle Peter and the Apostle Paul both quote this text as they're sharing the gospel to the people that they were investing in. The first one, we see the Apostle Peter in Acts 2 the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit shows up and fills the believers and they start sharing the gospel in tons of different languages, languages that they weren't prepared to speak. And what happens? The whole place is just going crazy. And then Peter stands up and says, hey, what you are witnessing, here's what's taking place. This Jesus whom you crucified has raised from the dead. Listen to what he says. We're breaking into part of Peter's message, but I encourage you to read all of Acts 2 and get your bearings at some point. But Acts two twenty three and following says, This Jesus, Peter's preaching to the crowd, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, and now he's quoting Psalm 16, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life, you will make me full of gladness with your presence. And then he continues, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us today. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn in with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. And then he continues to preach the gospel, and he calls the audience to repent and believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus the Apostle Paul picks up the same thing in Acts 13, and we're breaking into part of it as well, but Paul is on what we call his first missionary trip, and he's planting churches in southern Galatia. And in Acts 13 and verse 27, he tells, he tells the audience that the very people who should have understood and, and recognized Jesus as the Messiah missed it. They, the religious leaders had the text, And it was read in the synagogue week after week after week. And he said because they didn't understand the text, they actually fulfilled it by crucifying Jesus. It was just mind-blowing. And then Paul goes on and he says, not only was he not guilty of death, but they had Jesus executed. And then they carried him away and they laid him in a tomb, verse 30, but God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared, and Paul goes on in his message, but then you jump down to verse 35 of Acts 13, and he says, he quotes this psalm. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. He's still talking about the resurrection. Verse 36, for David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep. He died. And he was laid with his fathers and saw corruption but he whom God raised from the dead did not see corruption. And he concludes with this, let it be known to you therefore, brothers, that through this man, this Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. We're dealing with the resurrection. This psalm, Psalm 16, connects to the the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And Peter and Paul both acknowledge it. And yet, the resurrection is something that's debated, it's contested. And most of the world believes that we are completely nuts for believing in the resurrection. And that's no different from normal because in the first century, they, this was debated and whatever. Anyway, in Corinth, Paul continues to address this idea of the resurrection in Corinth. And if you read 1 Corinthians 15, it's all about the resurrection. So Paul steps into Corinth and he's like, okay, the debate's going on and there's some people who believe that there's no resurrection. Well, let me set the record straight. I've made it a point to make the gospel primary. What was first delivered to me, this is what I have made primary and central to my ministry to you. And I've shared the gospel with you. And so what does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 15? Verse 3, he says, For I deliver to you of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And then he goes on and four more times says, He appeared, he appeared, he appeared, he appeared. He appeared to this group and to this group and to this group and to this group. This is not something that we've conjured up. We've not, you know, made it up. This is not myth. The resurrection from the dead is real. And most of the world thinks we are fools for believing it. But he goes on to say, and I would encourage you to look at 1 Corinthians 15. It's just an encouraging chapter. But he goes on to say that, you know what? If there's no resurrection, then what are we doing here? If there's no resurrection... Then Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you're still in your sins. That's verse 17. What about the people who died believing in Jesus? Verse 18. Then those who have also fallen asleep in Christ have perished. They're gone. There's nothing more. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Paul says if there's no resurrection then we better pack it up and go home. If there's no resurrection, this book isn't true. Our God is a fake and we are just believing myths and legends. In chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, Paul says, those who are responding to the gospel and believe in Jesus and the power of the resurrection, it's the power of God unto salvation, but to those who reject it, This is just foolishness. And nothing has changed. And so as we wrap up this study this morning, we have seen in Psalm 16 that David as king, priest, and prophet is the type, whereas Jesus is the anti-type. David is the shadow that points to Jesus as the substance. What David is consumed with in this psalm, Jesus embodies as the ultimate fulfillment, securing the reality of God's presence for us forever. The resurrection is true, and as this psalm resonates with us, the reality is, because the resurrection is true, Jesus has secured for us forever the presence of God, and he's given us a down payment. He's given us a promise, a seal, so that we know for certain And he's given us his spirit to confirm that within us. And so as we conclude this morning, this may be the the first or the 500th time that you've heard the gospel, that you've heard about Jesus as the Messiah, as the Savior. And this psalm highlights not only the presence of God, but the resurrection of Jesus. And it leaves you, along with its New Testament counterparts that we have cited as they're quoting each other, He leaves you with a choice to either believe in Jesus as the resurrected Messiah for your sins or to reject Jesus, reject the resurrection, believe it's all a myth and just live your life however you want to. You have a choice. Either this is real, it's true, or it's not. As believers in Jesus you can resonate with Psalm 16. We can resonate with the confident prayer of the psalmist as he faces the pressures in the horizontal, that God is the one who preserves his life, that God is the one, that we we only have good in him. Apart from him, we have no good. Can you rest in Jesus as your refuge? Can you trust in him amidst the chaos and pressures of life? Can you have this strong confidence? Do you find in him the refuge where you can allow anxiety and fear and doubt and chaos just to go away? Can you give it to him? It seems like this phrase that we often repeat is fitting for this psalm, that Jesus is enough for this life and the life which is to come. It seems like this psalm embodies that and so as david prays i want to conclude with a prayer for us to be aware of the presence of god father it is truly a joy to gather as your people in this place to be reminded of things that we confess we already know but we're such a forgetful people we need you and we declare dependence on you Apart from you, we have no good, but in you, we have life. we have satisfaction, and it 's because of your presence. so amidst the chaos of life on the horizontal, please remind us of your presence. May we be very aware of your presence, and even as we are about to partake in communion and share together in these Symbols that remind us of your death on our behalf for our sin. I pray that we would be, again, reminded of the gospel, celebrating you and aware of your presence. In Christ's name, amen.